0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit
1: www.podcastdetroit.com for more information.
0: Hey everybody, it is Wednesday evening. Time for American Whiner on podcastdetroit.com. It is 2019, everybody. Good to be with you. I was off for a couple weeks and I am back. And joining me, first guest this year, what a way to start the year, uh, Karen Strawn, joining us all the way from uh, Canada. Karen how are you doing?
2: I'm doing all right. I wish uh i could we could have our share claim, our global share of uh global warming <laughs> um, i I think we deserve a piece of the pie uh, given that it is so cold out there right now that uh my poor little tiny dog um, he he comes in from his two minutes outside just absolutely uh you know hypothermic so yeah
0: he's like what have you done to me what are they what's going on out there um yeah, yeah. It, it just uh, actually just snowed here like it was it was it felt like a like late march here in michigan uh up until today and then it snowed and it's still it finally it's like january was a cup was like a week late for us but uh but yeah it, oh uh,
2: you want you want to hear something unbelievable is our first snowfall and it was a heavy snowfall was September twelfth?
0: Oh my God! Here. And you're in, you're in Edmonton, right?
2: Yeah, oh. Edmonton, Alberta.
0: Oh my so. God! I could. No, so I'm not do even. That. I'm
2: not even in the Northwest Territories or somewhere like that, right? Yeah. I'm I'm in a, in Edmonton, Alberta. It's like not. It's three hours north of Calgary. It's it's five hours north of the American border. It's you know driving. It's not that far north, uh, but September twelfth. Yeah. Oh my God. No, something like eight inches.
1: My
0: uh, my mom is from Duluth, Minnesota, which is about as far north as I can like handle. And they would get they would get you know five six feet of snow, and and for them it would be like October. September is just unheard of. That is that is crazy. So I will uh, I I've, <laughs> I, I hear Edmonton is quite nice in the summer, but I'll be sure to be out of there by September, I guess, if I ever come visit. So well,
2: it's rare. September is rare. It's usually usually waits at least until the week before Halloween, but. Um but yeah, there's a reason we have our Thanksgiving a whole month before you Americans do.
0: Oh so. uh, there's another thing I just learned uh new today. So <laughs> Canadian Thanksgiving. Nice. Um anyway, so uh thanks for joining us. Um we're gonna talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but first I uh, I always start off these interviews with the exact same question, and that question is where were you born?
2: I was born just outside of Edmonton, just east of Edmonton, and uh, it was a then small town of maybe, smallish town of maybe uh, 10,000 people called Sherwood Park, and uh, my parents, uh, my dad worked in Edmonton, it's a bed- bedroom community of, uh, of sub- suburb of Edmonton, and uh, he worked as a heavy-duty mechanic. Um, my mom uh, stayed home with us until I was 10, I'm the youngest of three. Uh, their three daughters. And uh but she had uh, she joined uh the Air Force and gotten training as uh, sort of logistics and bookkeeping and accounting and stuff like that. So um she uh went back to work when I was ten years old. But until then she was a stay at home mother. Um not quite your typical stay at home mother, but um you know she was like fixing shingles on the roof and and uh repairing the fence and, and clearing sod and pouring concrete and screeding it and stuff um doing that kind of kind of work um so uh yeah and i had uh it was it was a really really nice place to grow up um lots of uh we lived right on the edge of this little tiny community uh if you crossed the street and went through a cut uh cutway between a couple of houses uh there was a farmer's field with a Slough that where you could hunt frogs and salamanders and all kinds of open space where you could let your dog run and and uh, and you know uh, wooded area on the side where you know there was wildlife, moose and things like that. So it was it was really quite um, quite an it was like like a Calvin and Hobbes style childhood where you know mom would kind of boot you out the door in the morning and tell you to come home when the street lights came on. So.
0: Yeah, it sounds pretty idyllic. Like both your parents worked with their hands, and and you spent a lot of time outside. You were the youngest, um, so what what were you into then as a kid? Like, what was your what were your hobbies? Like, while you when your mom kicked you out, you guys outside. What would you go do?
2: Oh, I had two friends, Darren and Paul, and we would uh, we would go out and and just we would just muck about. We would climb trees and um, you know do you know get up to all sorts of dirty. You know, stuff that, that gets your hands dirty and feet dirty and your clothes dirty. Um, come home with your, your hair a mess and, and all of that. So go out bike riding, go out hiking, exploring. Uh, played a lot of uh, toy cars <clears throat> and uh, Lego, you know, that that kind of stuff. So I was a real tomboy. Um, and, uh, in fact, I actually, uh, found out just, uh, a couple of years ago that I have two broken vertebrae and the only thing that I can remember that I did, uh, that would have earned me those was jumping off a school gymnasium roof onto the lower part of the roof when I was, uh, about eight years old. So, um, don't ask me, I'd, I'd, A ball went up there and I climbed up uh, onto the roof to get it and and uh when i jumped down i i hit i hit the lower roof a little bit hard so um well wow, so the- yeah you know like i was i was i was a rough and tumble kid i was definitely um kind of one of the one of the guys
0: yeah very active and you were just carrying those two broken vertebrae around for for until you were an adult and then you just you just yeah, happened to Yeah i didn't find even notice
2: not- my uh, my doctor sent me for a chest x-ray because uh, my new doctor, because when I told him how much I smoke, he kind of, uh, almost had an aneurysm and <laughs> went, we, I need to send you for a chest X-ray right now. And then, uh, when I went back in, he says about your chest X-ray and I'm like, oh crap. And, <laughs> and then he says, have you ever been in a car accident? And I'm like, no. And, and then we kind of, uh, tried to figure out how I got these, uh, two compression fractures on two of my vertebrate uh, mid back. So and that's the only thing I can think of other than a few tumbles down the stairs and stuff like that. Um, you know, just as a kid, you know, just general trips and falls and things like that. Um, that's the only thing that I can think of uh, can I? that I can remember that would have actually done that kind of damage.
1: Yeah, well, and yeah, totally I was random. walking
2: around. I, my parents were telling me all my life to stand up straight, and I was always telling them, well, I can't. So, But none of us ever suspected that Maybe there was a spinal injury there. So,
0: well, uh, what kind of a student were you?
2: Um, I was a bored student. I was I was extremely bored. You know, like I was one of those students that I didn't do homework, and I I didn't tend to do homework. I didn't tend to do the practice work that they always give you in class. That kind of open ended busy work. Um, I did really well on all my exams. Uh, so. I mean, I, I can even remember in grade nine in science, uh, my average, the, the average that the teacher had to give me because of the way they, they have to weight the work, right? So they have to uh, assign uh, a 30% weight on your exams and a 70% weight on your classwork. And she gave me a grade of 37%. Because I had gotten uh, over 90% on all of my exams, but I had only gotten 7% on uh, my classwork because I just didn't bother doing it. And uh, but then she went ahead and recommended that I take all of the uh, take all of the top level science courses in grade 10 uh, when I went into high school. So she sort of uh, she did me a favor. She did me a solid in as much as she could. Um to essentially ask that the high school make an exception for me, even though I had technically failed science in grade nine so yeah i was i was just i was an interested uh in in going through the motions and i was just but I was just very interested in learning things um uh, but and letting people know what I knew uh through quizzes and exams I just didn't feel like um doing a bunch of of work that i didn't really need to do in order to master the materials, so.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, what did you do uh, after high school, then?
2: Oh, my parents talked me into university twice. Uh, they they kind of insisted that I go. They figured that... Oh, my goodness. My dog. Sorry. Yeah, I hear him. Um, <laughs> yeah. They figured that, uh, you know, my oldest sister had gone, and uh, by the time I... By the time I graduated, she had uh, entered into her pre-med. She was uh, working her way. I think she had finished her... Just give me one moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, no problem.
2: She'd finished her uh, pre-med, her Bachelor of Science, in three years instead of four, won the Dean's Gold Medal and entered medical school. So, I mean, she was, like, on her way. And, uh, And my parents had... Those kinds of hopes for me, um, I had essentially gotten and gotten a job right after high school, and I was I was happy working and and uh, they talked me into going into university so I could have something to fall back on, a career, a real career to yep. fall back on in case you know I couldn't meet somebody or I couldn't make ends meet or or whatever. And I tried it, and I hated it. I hated it as much as I hated regular school. And uh, so I dropped out in the first semester both times, and they tried to convince me a third time, and I asked them, how much of your and the taxpayers' money do you expect me to waste? I mean, even if I finished a degree, um, I was cursed. I was one of those cursed individuals who's sort of good at everything, equally good at everything, and so it's most people choose their best subject and that's what they go into and that motivates them because it's their best subject but when you when you do equally well in chemistry physics english social studies all of those things and uh, and you don't have something obvious in front of you that you want to do for the rest of your life i don't think that there's really any point in going and getting uh spending uh your own and taxpayer money uh to get a degree uh unless you're planning on, you know, really wanting to capitalize on that and and do it for the rest of your life or for a significant portion of your life. And part of me was already looking at it like, you know, this is taxed these these universities in Canada are taxpayer funded, right? So um, you know, in Canada right now, every student in university, like the average student in university costs the taxpayer twenty thousand dollars a year. Right? Mm-hmm. So and they're only charged, these students are only charged somewhere between, unless you're going to medical school or something seriously intensive financially. You're only looking, you're only looking at maybe between 3000 and $8,000 a year in tuition. So the taxpayer is hefting is the majority of that cost. And so I was already looking at that and thinking, like, why am I wasting everybody else's money on something that, even if I went and, and finished the program and got my degree, I would probably just go back and work in a kitchen again. So.
0: Well, good for you for making that uh, you know that call at that age too. I mean, you know, a lot of kids just just get like you said, you you didn't want to go through the motions. It sounds like is is what it was. So that carried over. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, and it, it's just. It, it it seems so. I mean, so much of it, like because I, both times I chose chosen an education degree because it just seemed like okay, well, I could sort of envision myself being a teacher, right? And uh, I chose to major in science and uh, a double major, science and English, and uh, but then when I thought about it, I'm thinking, you know, my grade ten math teacher didn't train to teach math. He trained to teach uh, phys ed. You know, and and a lot of the teachers that I had were not trained in the subjects that they were teaching. So why am I even why am I even re- required to get a further education in in say biology and and English um, in order to teach biology and English in high school when apparently a phys ed teacher, someone trained in phys ed, is perfectly uh, qualified to do that. So I mean, it, the whole system just seemed to be ridiculous to me. So yeah.
0: And how long was that whole thing where your parents talked you into it and then you were like, I don't like it, and then they did it again. Like how long was that?
2: Oh that that was that was about over the course of about two or three years, yeah. Okay. So yeah. What? And uh yeah, I just I just didn't I just couldn't do it, didn't like it and uh and just let it uh let it go. But um and they, they were quite disappointed in their way. They're they're quite proud in their way. Uh you know, uh regarding other things that, that I've done in my life, but um, but that I think they, they really wanted. Um, I think, like most parents of their, their generation, they wanted something better for their children. Every parent wants better for their children um, than what they had. And for parents of that generation in particular, um, you know, when I was in high school... A vocational program, so mechanics or or carpentry or commercial art, even uh, those kinds of programs that are more in, you know industrial or more vocational, um, those were for the dummies, and that was clearly clearly seen to be if you if you if you had any brains whatsoever, you were going to matriculate and go into a profession. You were not going to waste your life fixing cars or um, silk screening t-shirts or, or things like that. Right. So, um, that it was, it was never even presented to me as an option by my guidance counselor or by any of my teachers or even by my parents that, um, you know, maybe go for a trade. So, yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, what did you, what did you want to do? Did you even have like an ambition of, for yourself at that point? Or you just kind of like, I just want to live my life and see what happens?
2: I think it was more the live my life and see what happens. I mean, like the one, the only thing that I had in my head uh, at that time was that I wanted to have children when I was still young enough to, to enjoy them. And, uh, and if I wanted to do that, I needed to um, essentially find a man who I would be interested in marrying. Right. And so those were, those were the, those were the life goals that I had um that I could actually identify you know so in terms of career and whatever i i always assumed i was going to work i always assumed i was going to be working my my whole life and all of that stuff and i you know i had no end of opportunities in in the field that i went into which was uh, was cooking you know like i got promoted up the ranks and and uh, and ended up you know with a uh, very good skill set in that um and a lot of respect, uh, where you know, in my workplace. But um but it, it was just it was never it was it was really, you know, you work for a living, um, but you have a family because you want to live. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what you want your life to be. So you work to uh that was how I always saw it. You know, I wanna have a family and that will make working worthwhile so
0: and you're still you're still in the restaurant business too right that's what you've always you've always done
2: yeah well I mean like i I now right now I do this uh you know my activism full time uh, I could only do that because my partner um, has a very good job and he's very supportive of my work um, but uh I would certainly uh be working part time uh waiting tables you know which is Another skill set. It's actually a, in some ways, a more complex skill set than cooking. Cooking is, you know, you're dealing with inanimate objects. It's food. Um, with uh, with dealing with people is is another thing altogether. Um, but it it pays very well. Um, so that's what I did after I had my children. and Went back to work. Um, is I waited tables because there was just more money in it. You could work fewer hours and make more money. And and that just worked out for me and my family. Hmm.
0: So. What kind of uh cooking did you do?
2: Oh, you know, I did, I worked at a, uh, really, 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 uh, excellent rib place, uh, for a while they, until they tried to talk me into going into management. And I said, no, um, because every kitchen manager I knew is an alcoholic who <laughs> sleeps like four hours a night and is always stressed out, breaks out in stress, acne and stuff. Right. Um, And, uh, I worked at a, uh, four star, four stars means that they, oh God, not, no room service, I think is what it means. Um, so essentially it was a, it was a very, very high end hotel in Victoria, BC that I worked at for on and off for about four years. I was, uh, you know, in charge of menu planning on Sundays, special menu every Sunday for brunch and, and all of this and they had uh, very very sort of um it was owned by a multimillionaire and uh they had uh the the pub and the restaurant and the banquet room were just absolutely covered with original artwork um they sort of used the walls of the uh the public space in the in the hotel as a uh art gallery where they sold original artwork so you could you could actually purchase a, a picture from off the wall um they imported the taps for the beer at the bar from uh, a pub in scotland in shropshire and uh, so i mean it was just absolutely uh, they were they were antique they were like 120 year old taps so i mean like it was just a very very unique place $400 worth of fresh flowers in the washroom. You know, kind of thing. Wow. That's where I cooked for uh, most of my cooking career. So,
0: well, um I'm going to jump to the uh to the men's rights uh activism. Um you've actually referred to yourself more of a uh, you say you're more of an anti-feminist than a men's rights activist. Um
2: Well, my priority, the priority is anti-feminism. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, uh, definitely a men's rights activist for sure uh but i most of my energy goes into um you know sort of uh offering a counter theory to uh what feminism offers so
0: well how did you get involved in this whole thing like what what spurred it when did you cuz i know you you know we'll, we'll get into your vlogging and all that but like how did you first hear about it and what made you want to be part of it
2: well i mean like I, i'm one of those people like i didn't have a i didn't have a computer until nineteen No, it was two thousand and one or something like that, and i didn 't even have an, the uh internet until two thousand and seven so wow. I mean like i I was completely unaware that there were any movements that attached to any of this stuff, right, but I went through my whole life um feeling like that the feminist narrative was it did not resemble my life in any way whatsoever um And, uh, and I knew, you know, like, I think everybody knows that there are men who get screwed over in divorce, that there are men who are, uh, treated very, very poorly, even abused by their wives, um, who don't really have, uh, much to fall back on. They don't really have many options, particularly if they have kids. And, uh, there, there are a whole bunch of things that, you know, I sort of noticed through the course of my life. I, I in fact I knew more battered men uh than battered women um before I even stumbled across the uh, the men's movement. So it was essentially it wasn't I didn't ever have to turn away from feminism or unlearn it. It just it just I always thought that they were just a bunch of kooks. And my mom felt the same way and my uh grandmother who was a career woman all her life, born before women had the vote in Canada, she felt the same way. She always kind of thought, like, why can't these ladies find something useful to do? You know, there's work to be done. Um, and uh, so when I was going through my divorce, there there is this point at which, you know, you would understand that you can itemize in meticulous detail every single thing that your partner did wrong that led to the breakdown of the marriage. But what I wanted to know, um, for future reference, I guess, right, you know, is were there any ways that I contributed to the breakdown of marriage? Were there any ways that I, um, you know, helped make this disaster happen? Um, Because I, you know, like the only person that you can change is yourself. The only person you can control is yourself. And I did not want to ever have to. My divorce was five years of thinking about it before I, actually did it because I knew it was going to be horrible for the whole family. I, It, it was an important thing. It was not something I did on a whim. Um, so I wanted to figure out if I had done some things that had led up to this. And uh, I managed, just by accident, um, I was, you know, writing romance novels, uh, you know, well, pornographic romance novels for women at the time, and I was a member of A bunch of blogs and review sites and stuff and somebody had posted let's go let's go over here they posted a link let's go over here and make fun of these guys and i went over there and this the places were just infested with feminists um i went over with them and i read the article and it was it was a bit of a silly article about hard science fiction always having some romantic subplot it's being feminized and men can't get the kind of science fiction that they want anymore because everything has to appeal, appeal to the ladies and all of this stuff and and uh so i thought that it was a sort of a trivial complaint and uh but i got to talking in the comments i made a point that uh kind of ripped a strip off of one of the commenters there all of these uh feminist women who went over there to make fun of them you know they they made the usual tiny penis fat ugly neck beard losers can't get laid no woman woman loves you nobody wants to touch your penis and this is what you have to do cuz you're bitter and and you can't get sex, and all of these, you know, all of this unbelievably sexist shaming language that you know feminists are supposed to be against. But, um, but the comment that caught my attention was, well, the new Star Trek isn't is is pretty good. I ripped it off the internet and watched it ten times, and I was like, well, who's going to spend three hundred million dollars making a movie for you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it, it, your girlfriend will da- drag you to the theater, right? Or she'll buy you the Blu-ray set. Right or the DVD set at that time. But, you know, nobody's going to make a $300 million movie for the demographic most likely to not pay for it, right? Mm -hmm. So what's wrong with you? And they all agreed that that, that's a good point. And then I went and read a bunch of the other articles, and those other articles weren't so trivial. They were articles about paternity fraud. They were articles about Mm -hmm. pregnancy entrapment, you know, women who lie about birth control so that they can get pregnant and and then you're stuck with a $200,000 baby mortgage, you know, amortized over 18 to 26 years, Um, you know, all things that can really change or ruin your life. Men get losing their driver's license, their passports, and their, uh, their liberty, going to prison and getting a criminal record because they lost their job and couldn't get a new one and fell behind on child support payments mm-hmm. or alimony payments—it's—it's it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, some of the issues that that are going on. So, part of my exploration of that website was um, reading up about the issues that men are facing and and having some of my observations confirmed to the point where I, you know, I was like, well, I didn't realize this was. Quite that common, and uh, but now that I know it's common, not just common but systemic, uh, that's a problem. But also learning a little bit about um, the ways in which I now believe that I undermine my husband's confidence and his sense uh, his sense of being needed by his family, his sense of being relevant within his family. So, it um, was it was a, it was a, a really really. Great experience on that website, and that, that's a, the website doesn't exist anymore. It was way more hardcore than than the the, the uh, apparently misogynistic uh, website a men dot com, which is the one that you know everybody says oh the SPLC says they're misogynists and stuff. So um, it was it was a much rougher crowd at this one website, but I I loved my time there. It was it was uh, was a Time where there were nobody was ever going to pull any punches just because I was a woman, and you were welcome there as a woman. Um, right up until the moment you asked for special consideration, at which point mm-hmm. you were shown the door. Mm-hmm. So that I think was uh, was really what got me interested. And then, of course, my divorce was finalized, and I moved provinces, and I got busy. I was working fifty, sixty hours a week. Um, to support my kids and and uh, pay all my debts. and uh, but when I met the man that I'm with now, he actually was very one of the things that we sort of bonded over was our shared knowledge of the issues. and uh, and then he introduced me to uh, reddit uh, and the men's rights subreddit, and uh, I started commenting there and uh, commenting elsewhere on feminist subreddits and other places. And I kept getting accused by feminists of being a fat, ugly neckbeard loser who can't get laid and (laughs) can't get laid and lives in his mother's basement because no (laughs) woman would think the way you do. I even had one who chose a few of my longer comments and then did a literary critique of them to prove that I was a man because I had a masculine writing style. And, and I'm like, OK, so I talked to my guy and I said, do you think I should make a video? Do, do you think I should make a video and put the rumors to rest? Because everybody's saying I just stole the photo that's on my blog uh, from from Flickr or something like that and, uh, and that I'm not really a woman. And he said, yeah, go ahead, put your face out there, do it. And I did, and my the second video I put up went viral, and and the rest is well semi-viral, and then the rest is history.
0: Yeah, that was the uh, that's the the one that went viral is the one where you talk about uh, why men aren't getting married uh, as as much. No, right? no, that no, it? that's
2: the one that's just most recently gone viral. Ah. The one that went viral at the start, at the very start, was called feminism and the disposable male.
1: Oh right, Yep, and, yep.
2: Yeah, and somebody uh, stumbled across it when I had, I think I maybe had about uh, 1,000 subscribers at that point. It was a very small channel. It was only my second video. And uh, somebody found it and posted it on the subreddit, rvideos videos, which has like 2 million subscribers, 2 million users, and said with the title, post-title, this video changed the way I think about gender and society. And after that things just really started rolling and uh and so essentially it just became like i i guess i've said it before with other people right that um the audience chooses you mm-hmm. you, you don't necessarily you, you don't get to choose your audience you don't get to become popular just because you want to be or, or whatever the audience chooses you and uh and I started getting emails uh, from people, messages from people uh, saying, you know, I saw your video, it was the first time I've cried in 20 years and I bawled my eyes out and all of this stuff. You know, it's just so wonderful to know that there's a woman out there who understands what so many men go through and uh, and you give me hope uh, Or or even I was starting to hate women and I don't think the situation is fixable, but at least I understand what's going on, and that makes me feel like I'm not crazy, right?
1: Yeah. Well, that's
2: so all of these, all of these positive messages coming in. So I was just like, well, I, I have to stick with this now.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I can't. Th- I can't just
2: be a one hit wonder.
0: Well, that well, that's so interesting too, because it sounds like you. You, I mean, you said you weren't planning. I, you can't choose. The audience chooses you. So. these were just your thoughts. You were, you were just telling people what you, you had, what was on your mind about it. Then based on what you had read, you know, in the, in the, since you discovered the, uh, that original site.
2: Uh, Uh, Yeah, no, it was, it was really just like, sort of, you know, like I, I do care about these issues. I really wanted to share my thoughts. I really wanted, and I do want to make change. I do want change to happen. I don't, I'm not going to take credit for change happening, but, um, but uh it's it's essentially you know i i did describe it in i think in my first video that you know like why do i do this well you know part of it boils down to someone is wrong on the internet and <laughs> and it's up to me to correct them right yeah. so um you know so i i i shift motivations every time i get bummed out about the fact that you know it looks like change is never going to happen i switch to the motivation of Someone is wrong on the internet, and I need to tell them. And then, when that kind of fizzles out, I switch to I just want to really understand the problem, um, and you know, go layers deep into uh, what what has caused all of this. Um, So, layers deep through the the legal system and the uh, political system and the social system and our uh, biological predispositions and all of those things, and try and understand it as best I can go back through, you know, look at, look at bonobos, look at chimpanzees, look at how they behave, you know, try and figure out how we got from there to here, um, all of those things. Right. So trying to understand is, is another huge motivation. I find it very interesting. Um, and sometimes when I'm bummed out about, you know, the fact that nothing is ever going to change, I can at least get excited about learning how it all went wrong. Right. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's 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 such a deep topic um that there's always something that will motivate you. So uh or at least motivate me. So and and again those those messages that come in um the comments that that get left under my videos uh, that they're just they're really like they're really encouraging in the sense that somebody needs to say this stuff. And it's nice to see that more and more people are saying it.
0: Well, I can guess what your your answer to this next question is going to be based on what you just said. But, um, but you know, even just saying men's rights kind of elicits this different reactions from from people depending on their politics. And uh, a lot of the reactions uh, are either you know they're kind of like, "What the hell is that?" Like, I didn't even know that this was a thing. It's dismissive or whatever. Um, is so is is a men's rights movement even necessary? And if so, why?
2: Well, okay, so uh, if you ask a feminist what rights do men have in the West, legal rights, <clears throat> do men have in the West that women don't, and they won't be able to to answer the question because there are no legal rights that men have in the West that women do not, right? But in the United States in particular, um, men do not have the right to bodily autonomy, and this occurs in two separate ways. Um, first, uh, Although now, apparently, it's um, it's the law, the federal law against female genital, genital mutilation has been ruled unconstitutional and been struck down, um, but there are still states' laws against it uh, in many states, and it's not unconstitutional to have a law against it, um, but... Uh, Men do not have that same right to uh, ha- having being born and having uh, a choice made on their behalf by their parents uh, to perform a mostly cosmetic surgery on them that uh, can lead to all kinds of complications, including death. Um, you know, uh, a- accidental amputations, uh, on purpose amputations after infection. Um, all kinds of, of things uh, that, that, that can result from that. And even with a, uh, a circumcision that is, uh, is that where everything went perfectly, you, you still end up with uh, certain issues, you know, like the U.S. has the uh, highest, <clears throat> highest rate of Viagra, erectile dysfunction drugs. They're, they have the highest uh, uh, consumer in the Western world. And uh, they also uh, have the highest uh, consumption rate for sexual lubricants, mm. and uh, there are very, very valid uh, anatomical reasons why that's the case. So essentially, what you have is a situation where uh, these men—some of them who, you know, like many men—are perfectly happy, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy with their penises, and I'm really glad that that's the case. My boyfriend is circumcised he's happy with his penis i'm super super glad about that and i don't think that any man should should feel like uh they they you know if they're happy with what they've got i don't think they should you know be convinced that that they've been deprived of something um if they don't feel like there's a problem but there are many men out there who are increasingly speaking up saying you know like i didn't make this choice for myself and i wish it had not been done And it should not be allowed. I mean, we have laws against tattooing children um, because that's a permanent decision that you're making for your child. Um, So, why would we have a law? uh, Why would we have it legal? Why would it be legal to amputate a a piece of your child's body without medical necessity? So, that's one thing, one right that women have. They have the right, uh, or had until recently in the United States. Uh, to protection from uh, genital cutting. Um, then also, women have the right to vote with no reciprocal obligation to the state. And in the U.S., men do not have that. Um, when you register to vote, when you register for a driver's license, when you register for most uh, gov- state documents, um, you know, state ID, whatever, uh, in the small print, as a male, you, it is in there that they will be registering you for selective service. Um, and if, for some reason, you decide that you're going to live off the grid and you're not going to get any uh, a driver's license or apply for anything like that, um, if you do not apply on your own before the age of 26, you lose the right to certain types of federal employment, you lose the right to Pell Grants and certain uh, kinds of student funding, um, you lose all kinds of rights. This is a crime uh, failing to register by age 26. is Even if you're not a citizen of the United States, um, if you're just a resident of the United States, you still have to register by the age of 26. If you have not done that, um, you can actually be prosecuted. It's a, it's a felony. Um, it can be punished by up to five years in prison or a fine of $250,000. So we're looking at uh, that uh, the connection between voting rights and or citizenship rights and the draft was uh, solidified by SCOTUS in 1917 or 1918, when a uh, group of anarchists brought a motion, uh, a constitutional challenge against the draft, saying it was it was the equivalent of involuntary st- servitude, and uh, the decision was uh, unambiguous of SCOTUS, they said that that every country has a draft, every country reserves this right, and it is a reciprocal obligation on the part of citizens to the state for the rights that they are granted by the states as citizens. And within one or two years of that decision coming down, saying men, because men had certain rights, including the right to vote, they had this obligation, women got the right to vote with no obligation whatsoever. So, um, so you're looking at uh, something that goes way, way back, right? This imbalance um, uh, in terms of you know the men having to pay for their rights, whereas <laughs> women, you know, once once those rights were won, they just get them. Um, and uh, oh, let's see. they are also you know sort of the the less cut and dried, you know, it's not ink and paper um, kind of uh, violations of rights. So the the kinds of things that we would see people complaining about in terms of, say, sentencing disparities between blacks and whites for the same crimes, you know, blacks uh, serve a 10% longer sentence, all other things being held equal than, than white defendants do. Um, but women, uh, men, serve a... <laughs> A sixty percent longer sentence than than women do for the exact same crimes under the exact same circumstances, controlling for everything that can be controlled for, um, and that's after already men are twice as likely to be convicted. Mm-hmm. So of any crime, so you have this you have this criminal justice dis- discount going on for women, um, where. Uh, When it comes to uh, they're they're less likely when they're committing a crime they're less likely to be stopped by police they're less likely to be arrested when they're stopped they're less likely to be charged when they're arrested they're more likely to be charged with a lesser crime right they are uh, more likely to be offered uh, a a favorable plea deal right they're less likely to be prosecuted. Um, and they are uh, less likely to be convicted. And then when, after all of those discounts are applied, when they are convicted, they serve 60% l- lighter sentences than men do uh, under those circumstances. So we have this discount going through. And then when, when uh, I hear some people justifying that men should be more harshly treated in the in the criminal justice system, because they're the majority of offenders. Look at the look at the prison population. I'm thinking, how do we know what the prison population would be if if men and women were treated equally?
1: Yeah, yeah, Well,
2: someone someone in the UK crunched the numbers and found that if men and if men were treated as leniently as women in in the criminal justice system, five out of every six men in UK prisons would not be there. That does not equate to parity. It still equates to three men for every one woman. But it certainly doesn't equate to 20 men for every one woman.
0: Wow. Well, and you see the, the, the results of that, you know, playing out in, in society too. Women are extraordinarily comfortable with c- creating, you know, conflicts and going and trying, get, making uh, arguments physical and, and things like that. There was a video on Reddit today um, of a woman in Australia who goes up and just shoves a police officer into a flower bed because it's, she's clearly just trying to be cute. And, of course, the other cops run over and, and they, they arrest her because it's not – you're not allowed to do that. And what's even yeah, funnier is you. the cop that she shoves is on the phone, and he was on the phone with the, uh, with the media telling, telling the media how, how well-behaved the crowds had been that day. So mm-hmm. I don't even know what the event was. It was. Maybe it was like some sports thing. But that's just like one example right there. Like, I mean, if a guy, a guy is not going to run up to a cop and playfully shove him – that's just not no, going to happen. No, so men,
2: men always, always have to contend with the underlying potential for violent confrontation. Um, women seem to, you know, and I think part of it is, is you know, innate, I guess, and, you know, in terms of men being more aware of the potential for physical um, conflict with, with other men. Um than women are, um, and that's that's like that is uh, served by biology. Women actually have chemicals in their tears that uh, reduce testosterone in men exposed to them and reduce aggression and reduce libido. Wow, so yeah, no, it's so it's it's like it's literally boiled into women that crying gets you out of trouble. um and it's boiled into men that a woman crying will get her out of trouble.
0: It's a superpower, so, practically. it's like a magic potion out is. of your eyes,
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's crazy, and so, but, yeah, no, you would never, you would never ever see uh, a man going up and doing that unless there was something seriously mentally wrong with him, um, because they know, they know they're either going to get arrested or they're going to get, you know, the crap beaten out of them, so, but women tend to do that kind of lets you and him fight thing, um, I've seen women do this in bars, let's you and him fight, so she'll go pick a fight with a guy and then she'll... Leave her boyfriend to cash the check that her her boyfriend's asked to cash the check her mouth wrote. Um, you know, like that's that's really sort of uh, that that's a common thing among uh, certain volatile women. Um, but you also you have this thing, you know, like we raise our boys always, 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 always. Like, can you can you ever remember? a time before you were told it's never okay to hit a girl, Alex?
0: No, no. That was, and I mean, I never had anything, I never even had any reason to believe that that was wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that, but I remember that I I have a younger sister, so I can't. I cannot remember any time when it was, it was, you do not engage physically with, Women, it's or with girls, it's just not something. It's not cricket, so to speak. You know, that's that's the. Do phrase. you re,
2: do you ever remember a time in your life when your your dad was not prepared to tell you to respect your mother?
0: Uh, m- well, both my parents were pretty. You know, my mom stood up for my dad to us kids, and, and my dad stood up to my mom. But uh, but yeah, I mean that was totally. You know, it, it, I. It's always been uh you handle the the girls, you know you need to be gentle with the girls. That's what it was. it was a, and and, uh, and so I, I can definitely see that. yeah, I, I see what you're saying. yeah,
2: but we we don't we don't teach girls that it's irresponsible and cruel to take advantage of their immunity from violence.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, it, it, we can, I, I can see that. I mean, and I do think it depends because I would say like my sister, my parents were very careful in telling my sister as well, you know, you know, your brothers, you know, it's not, we tell your brothers, it's not good to hit you and you can't, you can't hit, but you have to do that with them too. And so, but I, I think societally we don't do that at all. And, and uh yeah. to, you know, on a broad scale in the Western world, it's, it's very much, it's funny when a dude gets his ass kicked, even if he, he did nothing for it to happen. You know, to to justify it, or if something, if he something comical like a chair gets thrown at him or something, and, and he breaks his nose, it, there's still this element of comedy to it. Whereas if a woman, yeah. if something happens violently to a woman, even if it's accidental, it's a it's immediately like, oh god, is she okay? Sort of thing, you know. And yeah, I,
2: there there is, and that's that's partly innate. That that instinct, uh, you know, that we have is partly innate.
0: Yeah, protect it's, the eggs. That's we have what that is.
2: Yeah. We have a gut. Oh my god. Now it's my other dog. Does he want to go back outside?
1: My,
2: <laughs> sorry. Borat, stop. I'm going to squirt you.
0: His name's Borat. See, there
2: you go. You got squirted. I have a water bottle <laughs> to squirt them when they get out of hand.
0: Your dog's did I hear that right? Your dog's name is Borat?
2: Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> he's a he was a stray. He came wandering down the street. Uh when uh, just when the coyotes came back into the neighborhood and we figured he was little and he was going to get eaten so we took him in and tried to find his owners but no luck and, and well, not to get son, too not to my get too far off old named him Borat.
0: what not to get too far off subject
1: here but
2: what kind of a dog is he uh he is part chihuahua anyway uh, he's about twice the size of your average chihuahua and uh he's got the color markings of a rottweiler
0: oh huh um, I have no. a, I have actually my very first guest that I ever have a, had on this show uh, is a good friend of mine, and he has a Chihuahua with Rottweiler markings, so that's really interesting. And that dog's name is Bruiser. Um, yeah, the, but,
2: well, the black and tan is is pretty common in Chihuahuas, but uh, he's he's too big to be a Chihuahua. I'm uh, not sure he's a mix of some kind. He still has his uh, beautiful shapely testicles. It's been like you know decades since I last saw a dog that still had its testicles, so. I'm thinking of keeping them. Not <laughs>
0: lopping them off, so. Um so uh I'm going to I'm going to shift gears here um because uh what spurred this conversation? I'm trying to remember the first time I heard of you and and I'm pretty sure it was that uh the disposability of men video, the first one that went viral. But I can remember the first time that I saw you and I was like, "Oh, hey, it's her." was in the red pill uh the Cassie J uh movie that you made an appearance in. Yeah. And uh and so the reason I bring that up is because I saw on uh, on Reddit um, back when I asked you to come on the podcast here, which would have been about a month ago, you wrote something uh, that really summed up like something that I had been trying to articulate for as long as I can remember, as long as I've known about the manosphere and, and red pill and all that stuff. And the quote was, men in power do not act in the interests of men as a class. And that really... That, like I said, that summed up a thought of mine that I've been trying to have, which is the guys, the white dudes in power, don't do anything for me just because I'm another white guy. In fact, they view me as they don't think about me at all. So I'm just wondering if, if they, you if could. They do
2: think about you. They think about you as competition.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So could you just uh, could you just expand on that thought a little bit? Because I I thought that that was that was such a well,
2: well you know, like, succinct thought I, I out. Go ahead. I think honestly honestly the uh, you know men <clears throat> men in power uh, identify with the men around them when those men around them can uh, do things for them or do things with them when they you know men are highly cooperative I mean like you'd never be able to get an entire city of a million people uh, to uh, not have murders happening constantly if people were like chimpanzees or even bonobos um, it just it doesn't work that way with other species. We're we're actually uh our our men are hyper cooperative uh with each other and hyper tolerant of each other compared to other species. But um at the same time, I mean, uh men men are very competitive uh with each other and they, they will uh, there is something that I call the one good man syndrome, um, where uh one of the best ways to show women that you are a good man and pander to women is to uh, and get attention and approval from women, which is what most men want. Um, at On some level, they might not want to have sex with all women, but they do enjoy women's approval. They do uh, like the social proof that women give them. Um, so the, one of the best ways to do that is to essentially say, all those guys over there or all those guys back then, or all these guys of this class, those are all bad men, and I'm the one good man, right? Or me and my friends here, we are the good men. And uh, so it's it's really, it's been a fallacy of, of the feminist movement all this time that there has been this sort of uh, horrific, tyrannical patriarchy, as, as Jordan Peterson calls it, um, where men benefit, they privilege other men, all, all men. Um, at the expense of women—that that's just never been the case. It's, I don't think it's biologically possible. It's biologically absurd, as he's called it. Um, there is no animal species in which this this uh, could ever happen. Um, so why do we think that uh, we would be special in this way, um, where where men would, uh, I guess, uh, treat uh, other men with greater uh, benefit greater compassion greater you know anything um, than than they do uh the males who are competing for mating opportunities with them right uh or that you know that that it just doesn't happen in nature it just doesn't happen you find coalitions of males small coalitions of males in other species right but once you introduce a woman into the mix the men are all fight the males are all fighting with each other mm-hmm. right so Essentially, what you have is a situation where I think that feminists have been projecting their own psychology onto uh, what they see as the patriarchy. So they've been saying all this time, right, you know, since uh, 150, 170 years ago now, um, since 1848 and the Declaration of Sentiments, they've been essentially saying um, that men have gotten together and conspired to benefit themselves and each other at the expense of the oppression and subordination of women um, and women's misery and women's suffering. And, uh, you know, I think that that they've been saying that because they know, these feminists know, because they're highly coalitional, they're highly you know, um, female, uh, gynocentric. They're extremely, they're the extreme of gynocentrism. Um, they this is what they would be doing if they were in power. That is what they would be doing if they were in charge of society. They would be oppressing the opposite sex for the benefit of all members of their sex, Mm -hmm. is what they would be doing. So that must have been what men have been doing all of this time. But biologically um, and sociologically, the, the idea of that is absolutely absurd. This is why when you look up you see even though you look up and you see mostly men at the top, when you look down, right, to the homeless and to the imprisoned and to the, you know, the war dead and to the to the the people who are victims of state violence, political prisoners and, and people being beaten during riots and stuff like that. Um, you know, like when you look down, uh the people working the absolute worst, dirtiest, most horrific jobs, right? The, the the 15-year-old who works in a Bangladeshi a ship-breaking yard, uh, the the same ship-breaking yard that, that killed his father, um, you know, and his, his sisters and his mother are at home, and they have, to, they're oppressed by having to present a, a meal when he comes home with his paycheck, um, but yeah, they don't have to work, right? And so you see... Men at the bottom, too. It's mostly men at the very bottom right. of society. Well, that's something else so, Jordan
0: Peterson brought up. It's, you, get, you get a lot of men at the top and then a lot, a lot, a lot of men at the bottom. And there's not the, the whole – it stacks up at both ends there.
2: Yeah, and women mostly stack up in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Women are mostly okay. Even when you look at the reason – almost, almost equal numbers of men and women are what we would uh, – what the government would consider homeless right but the vast majority 85% or more of the people sleeping rough so sleeping on the streets right unsheltered homeless are men
0: right cuz they got nowhere else to go cuz there's the, cuz shelters yeah. are a rarity um
2: well and they can't even they can't even trade sex for shelter
0: y- yeah yeah well they can if they're young enough uh so, you know that's kind of a that that's a whole other discussion though um
2: you, oh yeah Fifty percent of sexually exploited uh, runaway youth, homeless youth in Vancouver are uh, boys.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, You brought up, um, you know, introducing a woman into the into a group. Men can get along in a group until you introduce a woman. Uh, was, was that an, originally an argument for why women shouldn't be allowed to participate in, 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 like, the vote and all that? Because there's a story I read uh, about the Israeli army. And, um, they introduced women into combat roles, and the men, they, they ended up not pulling the women back out because the men, uh, would completely lose all discipline if one of the women got hurt. They would completely forget about what they need to do in order to, to, to win the fight, and they would immediately ha- want to help the woman. Um, And it's, it's, it's even like, I mean, have you, have you heard about that? And if if uh, can you talk about that? Yeah,
2: I absolutely have. It changes the entire psychological dynamic and it, it really interferes with the, the necessary fraternal bonding of men in those kinds of high stress situations. Um, for sure. But, um, but essentially, uh, like the, the, the arguments against women having the vote and these are arguments that were coming from both men and women um was that politics was a dirty business, and it was beneath women to women were considered too morally um morally uh i guess separate from those kinds of uh base uh vulgar concerns partisan politics was seen as a vulgar concern and um so they also discussed things like um, you know women should have, say, should have a friend and a degree of enfranchisement in municipal elections and and municipal decisions, maybe even state elections, but for federal decisions, and you have to understand that the federal government at that time really only concerned itself with men's business, right? so it was it was essentially, are we going to go to war? Well, that's men's business because only men, went to war right mm-hmm. and uh, and there were women who were arguing that giving women say over whether a nation would go to war would be a moral hazard since it would be only women would not have to pay that price the price of that decision men would with their lives right so you had all kinds of arguments in terms of um, the fact that you know we we expect men to you know deal with uh certain things in life right and those are relative to the the nation those are the things that the federal government deals with so um you know we don't send uh you know our daughters to uh to the next town uh with with the cattle right to the market we send our sons to to drive the cattle to market right well when it, when it comes to trade with foreign countries well we let the men deal with that when it comes to war we let the men deal with that when we come when it comes to enforcing the law we let the men deal with that right and so men should be making the decisions about those things and um so you had this situation where the federal government really didn't have its fingers into very many pies at the time and most of the pies that the federal government had and the the you know women's suffrage struggle was mostly about the federal franchise, you know, voting in federal elections, um, not so much state and municipal because states could decide and municipalities could decide as they wanted. Um, and uh, you also had uh, an argument that it would divide men and women. It would divide men and women. That uh, there was a beautiful uh, letter written to, I think it was to the state government of Illinois. Um, by a women's anti-suffrage society saying, you know, uh, we trust our men to represent us uh, in, on, the, on the war, uh, on the battlefield, in the cornfield, and at the ballot box, and they trust us to represent them uh, at the cradle, at the hearth, and at, in the schoolroom right they trust mm-hmm. us to represent them in these places right and that our we trust our brothers our fathers our our husbands and our sons to vote in our interest right and there was a there was a huge argument that uh it would pit men and women against each other right to to have men and women it, within the, you know, I guess within even the scope of their marriages, arguing over partisan politics and not having to find some compromise, because they could each vote their own way and stick to their guns and all of that, and they didn't have to learn, wouldn't have to learn to get along or or make concessions with each other. Um, so it was, and there was an argument that was it was unnecessary, because uh, you look at campaign posters from back then, you know, a lot of them were aimed at women, tell your man to vote this way.
0: Hmm. Well, where is all this going then? Because, you know, like you just said, we've, men had these, you know, the whole gender role, uh, you know, trope with, you know, men took care of war and men took care of this and women took care of the hearth and home. And then the 60s happened and everything got thrown up and 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 it's all been sort of jumbled and mixed together now. We haven't really figured out exactly what all this means. In your opinion, where is all this going exactly? And, and what does this mean? Like, what are the new... Are, are there gender roles anymore, and, 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 you know, what are the implications of that?
2: Oh, well, there's the gender roles. I mean, the, the only gender role that is fixed, right, that is absolutely fixed by biology, is motherhood. hmm Right? Okay, mm-hmm. now, where did we come from? We came from a common an- ancestor that we shared with chimpanzees and bonobos. We split off from them somewhere between two and six million years ago, right? And uh, we, sp- we split off from the, great- the other great apes uh, further back than that. And uh, one of the interesting things about the great apes, all of them, except us, we are a great ape as well, um, there's no such thing as paternity in, uh, among the other great apes. There's no such thing as fatherhood. There is no fatherhood role. Um, there, there's, there's no food sharing with uh, between between males and uh females there's there's no helping with the kids there's no uh there's no babysitting done by fathers in in those uh species um except in exceptional cases uh there's there have been a few observed cases of gorillas gorilla males taking over uh protection of of a juvenile uh when its mother dies but uh, other than that, all the mothers are single mothers. And the, the fathers of the offspring don't provide anything to either the mothers or the children. That is the only gender role that appears to be completely fixed in biology. And, uh, and so we throw away fatherhood at our own risk. We don't understand what an amazing thing fatherhood as humans uh, perform it. We don't understand how important it is. We don't understand that fatherhood may be the primary reason why we're these naked apes living in air-conditioned houses with, you know, roads made of uh, sand, uh, gravel, and bitumen, you know, driving, you know, vehicles with internal combustion engines that have wheels on them that were only discovered, you know, 5,000 years ago or or figured out 5,000 years ago. We we don't realize how good we have it that the fathers in our society for the most part want to be fathers to their children and partners, active partners with their uh, the mothers of their children. And that our society, this this tyrannical patriarchy that these feminists say means women's enslavement, is uh, is the only reason why they have the, why every mother isn't a single mother, right? And the only reason why we can have the single mothers that we have right now, uh, given how labor intensive our children have been become, right? And this is the one of the primary reasons why fatherhood, I believe, is what got us that the partnership and cooperation and contribution of two parents into a child so that, that, that the the ambulatory phase doesn't even come until like a year after birth. And then, you know, it, they got to be like six years old before you can trust them not to eat the poisonous berries right and and take your eyes off of them and you can only invest that much in a child if you have more than one person investing right and more than one person keeping an eye on that child and uh so essentially we could be just like chimpanzees still and get our Baby teeth at age two, and get our adult teeth, or get our have our baby teeth fall out, and our adult teeth come in at age two or three or four, and be sexually mature at age seven or eight, and and be fully adult at age twelve. Right? We we could be like that. Uh, we wouldn't have language. We wouldn't uh, have our the intelligence that we do. We wouldn't have all of those things because when you when you have to grow up uh, fast, there's less time to get smart. There's mm-hmm. less time to develop. And so that investment of fathers in children and in the mothers of their children is part of what got us here. It's a huge part of what got us here. And, uh, and feminists see that as an oppression. They see that as oppression, but they don't understand what the alternative is. The alternative is every mother is a single mother, and we don't live in a society where men can be taxed um, to the point where men pay 75 80% of the taxes and women pull 75 or 80% of the benefits. Right? So no you might think oh these single mothers they're they're these strong independent single mothers. No, they're not. Because they're relying on men. They're still relying on men. And they're still depending on men because men are the ones who are contributing the taxes into the system that are paying for welfare and subsidies and daycare programs and and school lunch programs and all of these things that single mothers need, WIC and food stamps and all of that stuff, that's all paid for by men. Right? New Zealand did a study, uh, did a report on the cumulative net tax contrib- uh, impact uh, of men and women over a lifetime. Right? So it's, they essentially set up the study like when you're born, you have a bank account It has an unlimited uh, upper balance, it has an unlimited overdraft, right? and you start at zero. And boys and girls, for the first 24 years, they, they go into the red, into the red ink, dip into the overdraft at the exact same rate, and they hit, at 24, they hit that low point, right? And then it, for, for men, it turns back up, right? And at age 40, they're above zero, and at age 65, they're about $50,000 into the good. They've contributed 50000 more than they've taken out. At age 65, it goes down. And at 80, they owe nothing. They've spent nothing. They owe nothing. They have a clean, perfect, zero balance in their bank account, right? Whereas women, women never get closer to breaking even, to paying back what they've taken out than negative forty-five or $50,000 at age 65. And if they live to age 80, they've spent $150,000 more in tax money than they've paid in. That is the reality. That is the reality that we're living in. That is the only reason why why we don't have single mothers and babies starving in the streets, and that's the only reason why we've been able to have this explosion of single mothers, this explosion of women who decide that, you know, um, my mom had a baby and my friend had a baby and my sister had a baby, so I lied about birth control to my boyfriend so I could have a baby too. Mm-hmm. Well, the, it's because the government is prepared to take money from men and give it to those women. So don't tell me that those women are independent.
0: Hmm. Well, how has how mother, your own being a mom yourself shaped your views on this?
2: Oh, well, I mean like, you know, my choice in being a mother, like I was not going to become a mother outside of, of a marriage. I was, I was not going to do that. And I got married and, it didn't work out and and like i said it was a it was a, an excruciating five year long decision to end the marriage um and, and we're on good terms now but uh you know like i i just absolutely like i i think it's absolutely 100% selfish to to deprive your children of a father uh, whether you do that by having a child uh, w- without the agreement of a man or whether you do that by frivolously divorcing because you aren't one hundred percent satisfied um, I think that that the idea that that we can uh, we can just everything is just absolutely perfectly fine um, after divorce uh, that now, you know, even economically, right, even economically, um, you're looking at twice the consumption rate, the same amount of people, but twice the consumption rate, because, you know, if he wants to be able to have his kids visit him, he has to have a suitable domicile, Mm -hmm. which means that he can't just have a bachelor suite, (coughs) because it's just him most of the time. He has to have a three-bedroom house, or a three-bedroom apartment, so his kids can come and have a place to sleep, right? So he's heating that, he's, you know, he's consuming water and electricity and, and natural gas and all of those things uh, to a higher degree, you know, you two fridges, two stoves, two, you know, uh, two flushing toilets, all of this stuff. If people actually live together, you know, and if you want to, if you want to use a left wing argument for the preservation of the family unit, the, the nuclear family, if people lived in the United States the way they lived in 1970. Um, So the same marriage rate, same age of first marriage, same divorce rate, same number of uh, ratio of uh, household, multiple-person households versus single-person households, right? You'd be saving billions and billions and billions of gallons of water a year, something like 300 billion gallons of water, 30 billion kilowatt hours of electricity would be saved. Interesting. Every year,
0: and it also makes a lot of sense. That's that's one of the. It's another thing that it's kind of like it's right there for you to to pick up on. Well, but you, you don't immediately, yeah. No, thinking.
2: and it's like you look at you look at how how much things cost and how much taxes are going up and how much of our expenditures of tax money uh, are going towards social programs to make up for the fact that families are not strong. Um, th- this is this is just. I think it's just an insane path that we've gone down. And, you know, yes, I agree. I agree. Marriages can can be bad. Marriages can be horrible. I agree, okay? Um, there are marriages where women have every right to, they should have every right to leave, or where men should have every right to leave the marriage, right, and all of this stuff. But I think that there has been this sort of free agent mentality going on, particularly with women who are the initiators of the majority of divorces, right, that if things aren't 100% perfect and if I'm not 100% content, I, I can just upend the lives of my, my husband and my children, right, and just, just, throw the, just flip the table over, let the dishes break as they will, right, and I should be able to be fine, and I shouldn't even have to feel bad about my choice because I didn't have any sense of duty not to my husband, not to my children, not to society. Mm-hmm. Right, and we 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 imbue men. We beat them over the head with a sense of duty. Step in when you see sexism. Step in when you see somebody being hurt or bullied. Step in when you blah blah blah. Right,
1: it's you on know, us. Step up. Yeah. Step
2: in. Intervene. You know, uh, contribute. You know, uh, be a good person. You know, uh, be respectful. You know, watch your p's and q's. You know, don't do wrong. Right, all of don't these things we, we bash men over the head with it, um, but we don't expect women to have any kind of obligation to others or, or to society in the same way.
0: Mm. Well, no, I would say like not nowadays uh, nearly as much because you hear feminists complain a lot about women are expected to do this and women are always expected to be nice and to be uh, to be submissive and all this stuff and that's the the new uh, they, they just made that. Um, New movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg with uh, Felicity Jones uh, called On the Basis of Sex, and I haven't yeah. seen it. I don't even think it's out yet. But uh, the trailers, th- it's the same. It looks really cut and dry, you know, feminist, uh, you know, sort of one dimensional feminism sort of uh, sort oh, of movie. Because, yeah. yeah, because it's like oh, she, the 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 big uh, the big hook at the end is she's she's giving her argument in in, in uh, the Supreme Court and and. Uh, the one of the judges says something to the effect of like, we, you know, there's no, there's some, there's not the, the constitution doesn't mention woman or something like that at any time. She's like, neither does freedom. Yeah. And, uh, and I was, I saw that in a couple of theater and people are freaking applauding that. I'm like, this just doesn't, this just doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, maybe it does, you know, maybe that's what happened with her, you know, in, in real life. But, uh, but there's this implicate oh, yeah, there's, there's this is, implication I'm not, that's just not it just is, is not the whole story
2: i'm not i'm not saying that that women didn't face discrimination of course they did right but i am going to say you know like when i was just reading an old it was a 2013 piece in i think the new york times right written by a female doctor and she she's calling she's sounding an alarm about the propensity now that uh I guess in 2013, 52 or 58 percent of med students were women, um, and an increasing proportion of practicing doctors were women. And and when you have more female doctors, you get less doctoring for your investment. You just do. They they take extended leaves to have children. They come back. They only want to work within office hours. They don't want to work overnight. They don't want to work in the ER. They don't want to. Um, they don't want to specialize. They don't want to be an, an anesthetist because um, you sometimes get woken up in the middle of the night to uh, do anesthesia for an emergency surgery. Um, they they want something flexible. They want part-time hours. Um, sometimes they... I met a, a woman during my, my dirty book writing phase. Um, she was on one of the forums. She, uh, she was an MD, and... Uh, she essentially said, Oh well, I've been practicing for two years and I don't like it. So I wanna be a romance novelist and I'm hoping that I can if I write books, you know, I'd I'd be happy to take the pay cut to be a mid list author doing something I love. And I'm thinking, Well, what about the three quarters of a million dollars the American taxpayer invested in having you sit in a finite number of seats, bumping mm-hmm. somebody else out?
0: Well, America, America's mean, schools medical. are a little bit, a little bit different, but I mean, you know, she, I mean, that taxpayers, they, they fund some schools here in this, in the U.S., but compared to Canada, it's not even anything close. But I, oh, I, no, I, I get no, your no. no, and I completely is, agree. So,
2: on, only two universities in the U.S. don't accept federal funds mm-hmm. and state funds. Only two universities in the U.S. are entirely private.
0: Oh, really? Uh, well, it's yeah, still, one I mean, going under. I can't. I I can't speak to to that. I'm not. I'm not well versed enough on that. But I do know that that people go in the U S. Here, we having. I mean, I'm sure you've heard about it, the incredible student debt that we have. Um. So, but oh, yeah. I. But I. Uh, I. So we are paying stuff. Uh, we are paying something for it. But I. I agree with your broader point on that. Um. So I well, won't. Well, even uh, even if you look at that, residency but. for you
2: know because the, the universities for the med school is government subsidized even in the U S right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, the uh, the residencies in hospitals, which is the final part of the training, right, which is, I think it's two years, or something like that. Um, that, that is not, the student doesn't pay for that. The student already has their MD, right? They just have to do their two years or three years or whatever of residency uh, working, and they're being paid, and that is paid by the government. Their wages are being, as doctors, are being paid by the government to finalize their training. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a huge investment for the taxpayer. Yeah. And the the, the the public does not get a return on their investment. Um, you know, like, women are 80% of OBGYNs. Uh, they are 60% or something like that, or more, of pediatricians. 60% of general um, general practitioners, family doctors, primary care physicians. So you're looking at a situation where these are hands-on. This is not somebody in a lab supervising, you know, research oncology or whatever. Um, this is this. Is, these are people doing hands-on care for patients, and uh, and they want to work part time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you and, see, and you see that in every field, you know. Like I think that's another, not to bring him up too much, but Jordan Peterson talks about the whole female CEO corporate lawyer thing, where they they spend their twenties trying to get to to the as high as they possibly can and they finally get there and they're like i'm 30 i want a family and then they they have to drop out and 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 have a family which is i think people should be allowed to make that choice but it's still it's like you just spent all this time and now there's some guy out there who maybe wanted it and could have you know made the contribution and put his life into into this career and he's not going to be able to do it and then married you
2: and supported you when you wanted to have kids yeah you know like it's you know, so I mean, like we have to, we have to actually be able to look at this holistically, and we have to be able to say to people, we had a big, huge discussion in Canada. We have, we have this tiny little province called Prince Edward Island, right? And I think it's like uh, only three hundred and some thousand people in this whole province. It's like really, really small, and uh, so they don't have a med school, but they need doctors, so they. Uh, The government, the provincial government of Prince Edward Island reserves seats. I think in one university in New Brunswick and one in in Ontario. Uh, Four seats in each province each year, something like that, at the cost of fifty-seven thousand dollars each. So fifty-seven thousand dollars each to hold these spots open specifically for students in Prince Edward Island, right? Who want to go and and go to med school, and Never mind that, that Prince Edward Island students can go ahead and compete for any of the other seats, right? So it's, it's not like only this many students can can have seats in these universities. They can compete for seats in any med school in Canada. Um, but these ones are guaranteed for Prince Edward Island, Island students at the cost of the government. And uh, But what they've been finding is that increasingly... Uh, these people, they, they, they've they lived in Toronto now for six years doing their med school and their residency, and and they, uh, they don't want to go home. They don't want to go practice medicine in Prince Edward Island, and so Prince Edward Island was talking about, well, we're either going to stop funding these seats, these reservations, or we're going to um, institute a requirement that if you take advantage of one of them, that you come back for a period of time and, uh, and practice medicine in Prince Edward Island, and everybody flipped their nut. Everybody flipped out because that, you know, how dare you take away these seats that we're entitled to, mm-hmm. okay, but also how dare you require us to repay the debt that we owe Prince Edward Island by actually practicing medicine there.
0: Well, it seems like that might be the way to uh, to sort of get around the whole problem of, of you know, these people take, women taking, uh, you know all this time to and, and resources to to pursue the career and then decided getting there and deciding that I want it is having some sort of like you have to if you decide to do this if you want to do this then you have to be in it all the way up until this certain point and then if you want you can you can go do your own thing because all you really need is just to have that extra pause where they're kind of like well if I do I really want to do this what do I want more basically you know so um, yeah so that seems like a, a perfectly reasonable compromise to me.
2: I think so, too. Like, I'm not talking about barring women from getting secondary, post-secondary education or becoming doctors. My sister's a doctor. She's made a massive, huge, successful career out of it, but she saw it as a career. And so, essentially, you know, and she made choices that in her career that, you know, where she was just like, okay, well, I'm going to stay at this level and not advance um, where a man might might choose to do so because I'm prioritizing my family, right, uh, over advancing in my career. But that didn't mean she just decided she just wasn't going to work anymore. She wasn't going to do her, you know, do her duty as a doctor, uh, her, her, you know, obligation to society. Um, so what you, what you look at, you have to look at it in terms of like a balance. I'm sure that there are plenty of men out there who get their MD and then decide that they want to write Thrillers or something like that, but um you know or or do something else, maybe learn guitar and be in a garage band, right or travel instead but uh, but it is far fewer of them who make those choices. Something like four out of ten women uh have permanently left the workplace by the time ty- by the time it, ten years has passed since they got their uh, professional credentials this is This is not sustainable.
0: Mhm mhm. And it's a fine balance too because you don't want to take away people's liberty or people's ability to change their mind on things, but at the same time you don't want to be you don't want to be you wasting just need to too stop much
2: subsidizing bad choices. Yeah. Right? You need to stop subsidizing people, you know, it, like if people had to pay the full cost of their decisions, right? If 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 single mothers couldn't get welfare, we'd have a lot fewer single mothers. Mhm. I'll tell you that, right? Because many, 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 and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say how many, but I know a lot of single mothers who are single mothers by choice, right? Not, not by his choice, by her choice, mm-hmm. against his choice. So, you know, these, these are. It, it really is just the introduction of a moral hazard. When you subsidize poor decisions, you're going to get more people making those decisions. Um, And when you create a moral hazard, you find people behaving irresponsibly. And right now, we have uh, an entire society bent on making every choice a woman could possibly make as consequence-free as possible. Whether it's getting drunk and going upstairs to a man's apartment, okay, that should be as consequence-free as possible. Um, She should be able to charge him with rape even if she climbed him like a fire pole and begged him. You know, to, to you know, it, but she was drunk, and so you know, she's not responsible for her decisions, and that that means that that's rape. She couldn't consent, right? Uh, everywhere from that to uh, a woman uh, going off, not just a woman going on, quietly going off birth control to trick her husband into having another child, right? But a woman saving semen from oral sex. This is an actual case in the U.S. A woman saving semen from oral sex to impregnate herself against the explicit wishes of her boyfriend, that her dating partner, who had said, "I'm not going to have vaginal sex with you because I don't want any children until I'm married," right? Mm -hmm. Okay, he was forced to pay child support for that child.
0: Yeah, there's there's that uh, um, there's a case right here in Michigan. I I I haven't heard anything. I haven't followed up on it recently, but uh, the guy was. uh, they were trying to force him to pay uh, child support to a kid that wasn't even his.
2: Yeah. So that- yeah, no, because the uh, I I think Carnell Washington, mm-hmm. I think might might have been his name. Um, but yeah, no. It, when when you apply, and this this was horrific in I think Santa Barbara County in California, it was absolutely egregious. Um, when you apply for welfare as a, as a woman with a child. They demand to know the name of the father and sometimes a woman might only be able to say, well, his name was Bob Smith and he lived in such and such a neighborhood and he's six feet tall and he has dark hair and brown eyes. And then the child support, the welfare agency contacts a child support agency. The child support agency tries to track down Bob Smith. They find a Bob Smith living in the same area who's a, a five foot seven ginger. Okay. And they serve him with a summons to court to contest paternity, and uh, he, maybe he's on vacation or something, and in Santa Barbara County up until, I think up until recently, maybe they've changed it now, uh, you could be served with a child uh, uh, paternity summons uh, by regular mail, not even registered mail, and not by process server. You could just send it in the regular mail. And uh, so maybe he, maybe he didn't notice it, maybe he thought it was a traffic ticket or something uh, and didn't bother opening it, uh, he didn't think it was important. Um, if he doesn't show up, there's a default judgment of paternity. And then the first he's going to find out is when his paycheck is garnished at up to 80% to pay possibly years of back child support that they'll assign him, uh, depending on how old the child is. And uh, and then he, he has to fight in court at his own expense to exonerate himself. Uh, he has to apply to a judge to get a paternity test, a DNA test. Uh, judge can uh, can can grant that or refuse it. Uh, the the mother can contest it if she wants um, with a legal aid lawyer because she's the custodial parent on welfare. And uh, and then after spending tens of thousands of dollars getting himself out of the obligation. They don't even have to pay any of the money back that they took from him because so long as there was a court order in place, it was perfectly uh, legal for the child support agency to take that
0: money. Yeah, that's – I mean, you hear that kind of stuff and you're just like, what can you do? You know, like, I mean, what can a guy do against that?
2: Yeah, no, and, and here, you know, like the American Psychological Association is saying, well, you know, uh, traditional masculinity is toxic, it's, it's harmful to men, you know, men, men being unable to talk about their feelings and stuff. Well, what good is talking about your feelings when it comes to something like that? When it comes to something like that, when it comes to losing your, your driver's license, right, because you, you lost your job. Right. You're a guy who lost his job and you were an accountant. You were a certified account, a chartered personal accountant or something like that. You lost your job. You couldn't get another one in time. Your child support was set at a high enough level that it crested the uh, allowable amount of arrears of uh, whatever it is for your state, maybe $5,000, something like that. Right uh, to to when when the state's going to take action um, because you were paying twenty five hundred a month so it only took you two months of being out of work to to fall behind to the point where you you were in serious trouble so they take away your driver's license and then when that doesn't work oh and they call you into court to, to do that and uh, and then uh, then they take away your professional license so you can't get a job now right and. Uh, then you have to go to court at your own expense, even though you have no money, to try and say that you want the child support lowered. And, you know, they don't have to do that, and they don't have to wipe out any of the arrears or anything like that. They don't have to adjust, make any adjustments whatsoever. They just say, go get a job. And then if you don't, you go to prison, right? And, like, this, like ha- what, what good does talking about your feelings as a man do in that situation? Mm-hmm. What, what what good does
0: it do? Absolutely. is is, is there a, Is there anything that you know? We've been talking about feminism and all the things that uh, you disagree with when it comes to it, and all the problems that have arisen from its attempts to fix other problems that it sees. Um, is there anything that you agree with when it when it comes to feminism, or are there any feminist philosophers that you that you admire? Um, is there anything that you that you like uh, that you can find to like in feminism?
2: Well, I, I will, and I had, I did just today on Twitter give feminism some props for um, actually acknowledging that society's assumptions about men and women makes people perceive men and women differently. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, so I'm perfectly mm-hmm. on board with that. I, I, I agree with them that sexism exists. That the the men and women are treated differently. Um, I, uh, I agree with them that. As society became more modern and more prosperous, opportunities should have been opened up for women, um, absolutely 100%. Um, so I, I, I agree with certain, certain things about feminism, for sure. Uh, as far as the feminists that I admire, oh, whoa, the f- Karen Crow. Karen DeCrow, she passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and she was actually um, one of the, I think she was one of the founding members of a group called Leading Women for Shared Parenting. And uh, she she actually took on that, she was the lawyer who took on that case that was in the red pill that Fred Ward uh, described, the Serpico case, right, with the cop that had the movie, Al Pacino played him in the movie, Serpico, mm-hmm. right, where uh, the woman essentially entrapped him. You know he'd been through all of this stuff. He's an under- undercover cop. He was shot. You know he was he was injured. He you know had to retire. He got his pension, and uh, a woman decided that she was going to after the movie came out was going to uh, have his baby, whether he wanted her to or not, and uh, lied about birth control, trapped him into pregnancy, and um, and he contested the child support claim, and uh, Karen DeCrow who was uh, president of the national, organiza- national president of the National Organization for Women in the 1970s for about two years, she was his lawyer. She argued that as long as women have the right to choose um, whether to become mothers or not, that men should not be uh, held financially responsible for women's unilateral decisions. And she successfully argued that in front of the lower court and uh, had the decision, the decision was overturned on appeal. Um, but uh, but she actually successfully made that argument in in a court of law, and I admire her incredibly. I admire Christina Hoff Summers, Camille Paglia, you know, uh, a bunch of uh, people who, Wendy McElroy, people who would uh, maybe call themselves feminists, but who I don't consider feminists, because they don't buy into... The patriarchy, uh, the the grand unifying theory of patriarchy, and all of its sub theories and theoretical offshoots of rape culture and systemic gendered violence against women and and uh, male privilege and female oppression and all of those things. Right. So, um, you know, there, there are there are feminists through history that I admire. Um, Sylvia Pankhurst. She was a British suffragette, um, uh, the daughter of Emmeline Pankhurst, which is probably the most famous British suffragette. Um, but she left. Uh, she left the suff- women's suffrage movement because of uh, her mother and her sisters campaigning for a mandatory military draft during World War One. She thought that that was wrong and and horrible and evil, and uh, and she went on to uh, do. Other charity and and nonprofit work in her life, uh, she left the women's suffrage movement behind. So there are there are feminists out there that that you know you can always find something to admire in any person, I think, and uh, uh, or some principle that they hold that you can agree with. So um, there you go.
1: Well, it, my
0: last question or one of my last questions is. Uh, when did feminism go wrong, or where did feminism go wrong, in your opinion? Oh, it
2: went, it went wrong right from the beginning. I think the Declaration of Sentiments, um, you know, because a lot of people think patriarchy theory didn't emerge until uh, women's studies courses, you know, or the 1960s uh, with the thinkers and the writers that that led to women's studies becoming an academic discipline, right? Um, you know, and they were all informed by Marcuse and, and Derrida and, and, um, Simon de Beauvoir and, and all of the sort of French continental philosophers. And so these, these were the, uh, this was the period in which patriarchy theory had its origins. But if you actually look at the Declaration of Sentiments and the list of grievances therein, that is patriarchy theory, um, in bullet point form. So, essentially i think it's it's really it's gone wrong right from the beginning because it i think women have a fundamental as much as people say women are are you know sort of more empathetic than than men are and that may be true in terms of how deeply they feel empathy when they feel it or the sort of the the um the, the way the emotion uh, manifests in women versus in men. But I think that it women have had a very, very difficult time uh, right from the start of feminism, uh, at least feminist women, I, putting themselves in men's shoes. You know, I really don't think that, that um, when you have, you know, the coal miner who, you know, walked that kilometer and a half to the coal mine or that mile to the coal mine, and then another mile underground, bent, hunched over at the waist, right, uh, to actually get to his work site, and then push the coal out, and then he staggers back down the hill. He's so black amongst his, his fellow workers that, that the children waiting on the doorsteps don't recognize their own fathers until they step up on the stoop. Right? And then he hands his packet of pay over to his wife, and she takes what's needed for the household expenses and hands him back a little spend at the pub. I really, as miserable as that woman's life was, I really don't think she would have traded places with him. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think that she would have felt oppressed by him or by the condition of marriage right, or by her dependence on him. She might have felt oppressed by not being rich or not being middle class or not being in a better position or not f- digging up weeds in the yard and finding a-, a coffee tin full of money, right, and and having a ticket out of there. I'm sure she felt miserable and and, and-, and it was horrific, but I-, I don't think that she felt it was her husband, right, and her husband's position as the breadwinner and her position as the as the person who stays at home and raises the kids, I don't think that's ha- why she felt oppressed. right? And so I think that there there is a reason why feminism emerged among middle and upper class women first, uh, because when your father's a barrister and your husband's a banker, um, who wouldn't want to trade places?
0: Yeah, yeah, right. And there's this sort of assumption that that's that's um, that's evolved into what feminism is now which is like all men are secretly living like when the women aren't around men are living this incredible life where they get to do whatever they want and they they get nobody challenges them on anything and they they just get to walk coast through life and and, and have things handed to them and that is just that is just that's not true for anybody ever that's never been no, true just- i mean it, it gets more true the higher up the economic scale you get definitely yep but, uh, but as far as like you just said, the average man the, that coal miner or, or the the average fellow nowadays, you know, well, nobody's... nobody who
2: works on the, up on the oil rigs in Fort McMurray or whatever, yeah, right. You know, like they're they're doing they're busting their butts for their families to make life easier and better for the the women that they love and the children that they they have with those women, and and so to to describe marriage as a state of you know sla- enslavement of women and patriarchal oppression on the part of men is just it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I'm sure that there are, <clears throat> don't get me wrong, there are plenty of men who would have taken advantage of certain gendered ways of looking at things, you know, say, you know, when you go back to read, you know, Blackstone's commentaries on the laws governing men and women and things like that, right? There, there were situations, I'm sure, in which men abused their authority over women, right, but there were ways in which women could seek redress over that through courts of equity and ecclesiastical courts, and if the man continued once a judgment had been made in one of those courts, then it was time for a court of common law to step in and put him in prison, right, so, because he'd be in contempt of a court, right? Mm-hmm. So, essentially, there there have always been safeguards written into the law for women, um, when men were in charge, but as women increasingly become in charge, uh, as women increasingly become legislators and judges and and uh, contribute to the model penal code and and write bills and, and gain intervener status in, in court cases and things like that, um, what we see is an erosion of due process protection specifically for men, specifically in areas where men are likely to come into conflict with women. So we're actually seeing the existing protections of the law um, that were never perfect, but were pretty good, right, that men could always count on. We see those being eroded specifically in cases where women's interests conflict with men's. And this this is – so it's going to be – it really is going to be – um, you know that The Handmaid's Tale, right? Feminists like to think, "Oh, The Handmaid's Tale is right just around the corner for women," right? No, no. The Handmaid's Tale is a is a gender swapped version of what would happen if feminists were in charge of things.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that actually kind of leads into my next question, which is, and I kind of already asked you this, but where do you see all this going? Like, I'm I'm uh, active in the the Red Pill community, Maybe not so much recently, but I was for a good year there. Um and uh, some of the more uh, extreme conspiracy theorists there think that we're going to end up in a society where it's essentially like a, a termite colony where there's there's men who are breeding stock and then the rest are just draft animals and ex- are expected to do the work. I don't think it'll ever get to that point just because it just I just don't see it happening. But, I mean, in your I opinion, like, where do you think this is all going?
2: I don't see that happening. What I see, and, and this is actually maybe even more... Uh, terrifying, just given the circumstances, right? Is I actually see a general social collapse, right? Um, you know, like that that there there will be a collapse. Like they, you cannot um, put so much pressure on the system, right? And bloat the government to such a degree, and increase the debt to such a degree, and in, and it's not just government debt that's increasing; it's personal debt. Um, and it's not just personal debt on houses, you know, and other appreciable assets. It's personal debt on things like groceries and and clock radios, you know. So it's, you know, credit card debt and, and other high-interest debts, student debt, all of this stuff, right? It, it, it can only last for so long before there's a, a reckoning. Um, I think the baby boomers retiring is going to hasten that along. And if there is actually enough of a collapse that we see rioting and and uh like we see something similar uh worse similar but worse to what's happening in france right now Mm -hmm. uh with the yellow vests um we may end up having a, a situation where a collapse is serious enough to become permanent and when i say permanent i mean uh all the easy oil and coal is gone Um, You know, coal used to wash up on the beaches at Dover, um, and it doesn't do that anymore. You have to dig miles and miles underground with heavy, heavy equipment, right? All of the easy oil is gone. We have to frack. We have to have offshore rigs. We have to have this massive infrastructure to harness that energy, right? So essentially, uh, it's like we climbed up an industrial ladder or a post-industrial ladder, and then kick the ladder out from under us because we need the infrastructure and the technology that we have right now to actually access the things that can sustain that infrastructure and technology. And so, if we actually lose the infrastructure and technology, um, we're boned. Like we're we're not ever going to get back here. We're never going to put another person on the moon. We're never we're not. There's going to be no more space program or or air conditioning or you know like several. Million or billion people who have ever depended 100% on a light switch, um, you know, are, are probably going to die. So it's 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 really it's it's not like I know that there are some people who actually are hoping for a collapse because it will bring back return to gender sanity. Women and men will become interde- interdependent again, stop being competitors, and they will have to team up once more the way we did. You know, and have over the last ten to fifteen thousand actually probably closer to two million years, right? We have teamed up um and we will no longer be competitors with each other, and people will fall into normal gender roles because those are the best options for them, given the circumstances. Um, but it, life is not going to be like it is now
0: mm-hmm. is there if a way, way to, happen- is there a way to prevent any of that from happening? like is there a way to reverse? It, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier on the show, like, um, you don't. a lot of people don't think these problems can be solved. But, I mean, what, what's your opinion?
2: Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not betting the farm on the fact, you know, the idea that these problems can be solved or that this, you know, a collapse can be averted. I think that maybe uh, maybe we'll be lucky enough to have a mini-collapse. Or some other country will have a mini collapse, and then we'll observe it and go, "Oh, hey, maybe we need to rethink our policy," um, you know, and and rethink things a bit. Uh, or maybe there will be a, you know, Generation Z, uh, Z, I guess in America, is uh, is more conservative than than any generation since before the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll have a return to sanity through kids looking at their parents and going, what the hell were you thinking?
1: So Yeah, I've always, I've been not, saying by kids, for... I,
2: by kids, I mean, not David Hogg.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, well, the, I've been saying for a while, uh you know, kids tend to rebel against whatever was cool for their, for their, the generation before them, Right. So it would yeah. stand to reason that the next one is going to be like all this PC shit. We're you know we're not we're not doing any of that. So uh, yeah,
2: I'm not going to buy it.
0: Yeah. So. um, is what's uh co- what's coming up for you in the uh, immediate future? Here is there anything you know, you'd like to promote or uh, where people can find you and all that kind of stuff?
2: Oh well, I have a red pill screening and question and answer uh, event going on in Fort McMurray. Um, February 17th. So, I don't think you have any listeners in Fort McMurray, which is in northern Alberta, but uh if there are any people who uh who are from there, you can uh you can look that up on Eventbrite. Um and uh other than that, I'm just preparing for for, you know, the odd conference and and uh the odd trip and and uh hopefully um in the summer, uh, the next international conference on men's issues, so preparing to be uh, there as well, like I have been for the last uh, four conferences. so
0: do you ever uh, have you ever found yourself in the Detroit area?
2: Uh, you know, the first international conference on men's issues was held in St. Clair Shores.:
0: Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that. it
2: was after after the Hilton Doubletree in Detroit uh, got death and bomb and arson threats <laughs> um, and canceled the contract with us to host the conference. We ended up in a veterans uh, VFW hall having our conference there. So. That's um, an appropriate but, spot to uh, do I don't it. ever find myself really uh, in or around Detroit, <clears throat> so unfortunately, um, but uh, I'm... Happy to go there if somebody wants to invite me to an event or to speak or something like
0: that, so. Well, we will keep that in mind. My,
2: my dog is just going nuts.
0: Yeah, I can hear she's him. He, a singer. He's singer. <laughs> um, well, this is... Oh, she's she, she,
2: She's just very, very vocal all the time.
0: So. Oh, really? She's a talker, huh?
2: Yeah, she sounds like Chewbacca half the time, so.
0: <laughs> what's, what's her name?
2: Kevin. Kevin? Yes, I... Kevin, I have a female dog named Kevin. Oh. I had another female dog named Charlie, and I had another female dog named George.
0: Oh wow, Charlie, I can see, but uh, the other two are, that throws that throws you off, right? But um, there you go. I
2: didn't even name George, so there you go.
0: <laughs> but uh, well, um, Karen, this has been my first two two-hour show. Thank you so much for uh, for talking. This has been uh, this has been very enlightening, and I've I've enjoyed this very much. I watched. Uh, Today on YouTube, I watched your um, your interview that you did a while ago with the Young Turks, and um, oh, and yeah. it was that you know what that reminded me of Karen was uh, that was like the Jordan Peterson Kathy Newman interview because it was very clear like because he started off so civil and then like halfway through it all of a sudden he started yelling at you and uh, and it was I realized I was like he's trying to get her to freak out and and you weren't taking it and so it was it was it was, it was really <laughs> was interesting laughing,
2: actually
0: yeah yeah.
2: He's yelling, Karen, Karen, yada yada. Yeah, yada. Yeah. Stop voting and yeah. go make me a ham sandwich. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got to give me that. You got to give me that. Uh,
2: God, got to give me a thank you for the suffragettes. Right after I told him that there are some historians who think that the suffragettes actually slowed down the expansion of the franchise to women. Right. Because they were seen as uh, they were seen as irresponsible and violent, and. Uh, and uh not the kind of people you would want to have the vote because they engaged in violence and terrorism and all kinds of other stuff, and also because the government was like, "Well, we don't negotiate with terrorists, yeah, so we shouldn't give them what they want
0: well i I was uh, I don't know this for a fact, but i I could just see one of his like producers or something like halfway through they would be like telling him like you gotta you gotta make this more interesting like you, like start seeing if you can get a reaction here but um
1: but yeah, so so that well, was his,
2: actually the producer was really really friendly and really nice, and he actually had a good chuckle with me over the the Chuck meltdown. So
1: oh well, there you go. He said,
2: "Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. It was pretty hilarious." So.
0: <laughs> well, it's been it's been such a privilege to talk to you. So thank you so much. Um, h- hang on the line. I'll give you a, a proper goodbye after we're off the air here. Um, but uh, all right. But thank you so much for coming on, Karen.
2: Oh, thanks. No worries. Have a good
0: one. Yeah, you too. Um, everybody else, I will be back uh, next week. It's uh, it's great to be back. Uh, looking forward to a good year here. Um, my guest will be, uh, those of you familiar with the uh, the movie Troll 2, it's considered one of the worst movies of all time. People have uh, called it the Citizen Kane of bad movies. Uh, the actor Darren Ewing, who is uh, one of the most famous, he might be the face of Troll 2 other than the trolls. Uh, he has a very famous scene where he yells, Oh, my God. Uh, he will be joining me, and my buddy Chris Nelson, who introduced me to the movie, will be uh, also be on the air with me. So that will be next Wednesday. I will talk to everybody then. Everybody have a great week. This has been American Winer on PodcastDetroit.com.